Well, friends, um, if you'd open up your worship guides, uh, or if you have your Bibles with you, open up to Galatians 2, 11 through 22. Uh, we're taking a break, for, uh, a brief break for the next three weeks from our sermon series in the Gospel of John. What we want to do is to really highlight, uh, really, the DNA of our church. And we, so we're going to start with the Gospel, because as the people of God, we have life with God because of Jesus Christ. This is the Gospel. And so one of the clearest articulations of this is in Galatians 2, 11 through 21. This is actually a passage passage that the, our downtown community group will be looking at in a couple weeks, but it's a wonderful passage to dig in and to look at as a whole church. And so uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. This is Galatians 2, 11 through 21. So let's give our careful attention and listening ear to God's word this morning. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this good news. But we pray that you would be with us now as we hear your word. May your spirit be shaping us and making us more like your son, Jesus Christ. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. A highlight of going to Disney World is seeing all these Disney characters. Perhaps you'll see Chewbacca, my favorite. Perhaps, now he's a Disney character. But perhaps you'll see a beauty, perhaps you'll see the beast. If you ask my, uh, my youngest son, he'll be really excited to see Mickey Mouse. But these people, like there are actors who are performing these different characters. The, it's a rigorous application prog- uh, process, but when you are in costume, you cannot break character whatsoever. That is the biggest rule. And so one character performer shared her experience about being Mickey Mouse. This is what she said. Growing up, I thrived on behavior modification. I thought, if I am good, then I will be loved. If I am bad, then I will be rejected. So I learned to wear a mask, not to show what was really going on. My core beliefs were were then that I was not worthy, 
accepted or loved. So I would clamor and manufacture ways to elicit the positive responses that I wanted from people. And when I put on Mickey's costume, I got that positive response a hundredfold. I enjoyed Mickey's righteousness. I felt safe and secure, and I felt loved. In a sense, this is a picture of what theologians may call union with Christ. We see this in our passage this morning in verse 20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. As, so this morning, I want us to think about union with Christ being the heart of the gospel for us this morning. And we'll return to Mickey towards the end of our time. Now, as we begin to think about the gospel first this morning, the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter tells us this, that the angels delight to contemplate the gospel. The angels delight to contemplate the gospel. It's a beautiful image, but gospel simply means the good news. So, this is, so every single Sunday when we go through our assurance of forgiveness, there's that question, friend, or not question, but friends, hear the good news. That is the gospel. And throughout the, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll see that the Gospel is really synonymous with the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God and inheriting eternal life and receiving eternal life are like Gospel vocabulary. When you look at Paul's letters, like here in, in Galatians, you'll see more Gospel vocabulary of justification, which you see in our passage. You'll see it uh, adoption. You'll see... Uh, other vocabulary, vocabulary words as well. But what Paul is doing here in Galatians, in for chapter 1, is that he actually says there's only one gospel. And so what he goes on to articulate is actually what that one gospel is for us. And so let's think about the gospel being a coat rack. The gospel is a coat rack, and there are many different hooks that you can put different things on. You can put justification on there. You can put adoption. But the coat rack that holds it all together is union with Christ. And this is our first point, union with Christ. Thinking, once again, looking at Galatians 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a beautiful summary of the gospel. Because what God has done for us is that God has accomplished our salvation. What Jesus has done for us is that he has rescued us by, by his death upon the cross. That we actually have life with God by faith. But this relationship that we have with God is not just a friendship. It's not just having a personal relationship with God. It's actually that we are united with Christ, this union with Christ. So Sinclair Ferguson highlights that our union with Christ is often neglected, but once you begin looking for it, it's all throughout the New Testament. So consider this. The word Christian in the New Testament only occurs three times. Three times in the entire New Testament. Christian is only used three times, and it means little Christ. It actually has a little reflection of union with Christ in it. But Paul uses the phrase in Christ over 150 times, and that's Paul alone. And so Jesus, during the Last Supper, which we have been considering over the past few weeks, but in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus even taught about abiding in him, being one with him, dwelling in him, and he and us, and being one with God, just in this, and being one with one another, just as the Father and Son and Spirit are one as well. See, union with Christ is at the heart of the gospel. And friends, hear this very clearly. Whatever is true about Jesus Christ is actually true of you by faith. Whatever is true about Jesus Christ is now true of you by faith. That is the gospel. And so John Ortberg wrote this. Perhaps one of the greatest barriers to faith is not the things we do not know, but the things we think we know yet are wrong about. We think of heaven as the pleasure factory rather than life with God. We think of salvation as being able to avoid pain rather than being made right. We think of the gospel as the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven rather than the announcement that life with God is now possible on earth through Jesus. And we think of Christians as people who have got the heaven job done while we think of discipleship as optional extra credit for spiritual overachievers. So John Ortberg is, is encouraging us to make sure we get the gospel right. And so as the coat rack is union with Christ, the first hook is justification. And we see this in verse 16. That Paul says this, that we know that a person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that we believe in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works. So here's this new, uh, this is another word for our gospel vocabulary. That justification is this reality that God gives us, that God gives us a new reputation. As we confessed earlier in this Come Thou Fount, our first song that we sing, we said and we sang, we confess that we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. See, friends, the, our hearts, this is the truth about us. Our hearts are faithless. Our hearts are fickle. But God says that we are faithful, that our hearts are true. We are sinners, yes. But God says we are righteous that our sins are taken away, and that Christ's perfection, his goodness, his holiness is given to us. So that we're no longer orphans, but we are sons and daughters of God. This is the new reputation that God is giving us. He takes something away and he gives us something new. And the reality is we do not earn this. Justification is an act of God's kindness. It's completely undeserved. It's unearned. We do not earn it. It's because of his grace. And this is incredible news for us. We are united with Christ to the point that we have a new reputation. Whatever is true of Christ is yours by faith. That's incredible good news. And at what we see in this passage, that there's still sin in our lives. It's powerful. It is present in our lives. We see this in Peter. That's Cephas in verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, we even see this in Barnabas, who is being led astray. We see that sin is present and powerful in our lives. It's so big that Paul writes about it to these churches. That he's writing to the church in Galatia about an event that happened in the church of Antioch. And he... he it's confrontational. He opposes Paul, uh, Peter to his face. And so this brings us to our second point, 
that we are called to live and walk in step with the gospel. So second, second point is like walking in step with the gospel. We see this in verse 14 that Paul is confronting them because their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. And so what was Peter doing? See, Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. That's what Peter did. And he knew better. Because, and he knew better far more so than any other apostle. And this is actually detailed at length for you in Acts chapter 10. So just to give a quick summary, what happens in, in Acts 10 is that Peter receives a vision from God. He has this vision of all these animals that were marked unclean by the Old Testament. And they descend before him in his vision and he is commanded, eat these things. And he says, no, they're unclean. And God says to him, do not call anything unclean that which I have made. And so this is a vision from God that tells Peter that these Old Testament ceremonial laws, especially these dietary laws, were now finished and fulfilled by Christ. And so because of that vision, immediately uh, he receives messengers from a Gentile named Cornelius. And this is an invitation for Peter to go to Cornelius' house to minister and preach the gospel to him. And, at the, and as he preaches... The gospel to, the, to Gentiles, he says that God shows no partiality. And shortly thereafter, the Holy Spirit falls upon these, these Gentiles and Peter baptized them. It's a lovely demonstration that the gospel is not just for Jews, but for all peoples. That our salvation is not through obedience to the law or anything else, but our salvation only comes to us through Jesus Christ. So Peter is the apostle who should have known better. And so here in this passage, Paul is challenging Peter because they are not living in step with their go the gospel. His lifestyle was undermining the very gospel that he was preaching. But why is that? Like in verse 12, we see that he stopped eating with the Gentiles because he feared the circumcision party. The circumcision party were Jewish Christians. They held that one must actually become Jewish in order to have life with God. One must hold to the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament in addition to believing in Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The truth is there's nothing intrinsically wrong with adhering to Jewish customs, but there was something very wrong about requiring that adherence to them and and after Jesus fulfilled them and saying that you need to do this in order to be one of God's children. Do you see the problem? It's that, that certain phrase, in addition to. And this is clearly, clearly against the gospel. And in doing this, what Peter actually did is that he obscured Jesus and put himself in Jesus' place. He obscured Jesus. And but what drove him to do that was fear. It was fear. Fear that drove Peter, and he was afraid of the circumcision party. And the reality is, friends, fear is a powerful motivator within our lives. Proverbs calls it the fear of man. Perhaps teachers, parents call it peer pressure. And so Ray Ortland writes this in his book, The Gospel. Fear of human disapproval feeds political posturing. It makes us want to be perceived in a certain way and identified with certain people. It destroys honesty, spontaneity, and joy. Perhaps that's what the actress was describing when what she wanted and when she was putting on the Mickey Mouse outfit. 
And so, the, but the Greek language here of, is this, is that Peter was not ortho-walking with the gospel. Like, that's a pretty interesting prefix of ortho because we go to the orthodontist. You have our teeth straightened. The reality is that the gospel has massive implications for our lives. But let's think about how do we do the same thing that Peter and Barnabas were doing? How do we add to the gospel? As I said, this is a passage, uh, the, the book of the Bible that our downtown group is, is looking at. And someone said, how don't we do this? Because that's the honest truth. Because at the end of the day, it could be ethnic or cultural superiority where we demand others to become like us in our culture or our ethnicity in order to become Christians. It could be the sentiment that one actually must hold to the same political party that you do in order to be understood or seen as a Christian. Or perhaps even more personally within our own lives, it could be a reliance on our obedience on our religiosity, our church going, our spiritual rhythms, that it's these things that make God love us or insecure his love for us. But we, friends, need to remind ourselves of this wonderful gospel truth. And here's the gospel truth we need to remind ourselves. There's absolutely nothing you can do to earn God's love. There's absolutely nothing you can do to make God love you more. Nothing. And that's beautiful. Because Jesus has done it all for us. God's love for you will never increase or decrease. Jesus died upon the cross to make that happen. See, that God burns with love for you and pursues you. And the gospel has massive implications on our life. So how can we experience this love? Not earn this love, but experience this love. So now let's think about two gospel implications. See, Paul is quite clear that we are justified by faith. We are justified by and through faith in Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus died upon the cross for our sins. And so this is the first gospel implication. The first step in having life with God is the step of faith. And, and faith always comes first unless, it always comes first because unless you are sure that you are safe with God and certain that God is never going to be disappointed in you, then you will never seek his face. Faith always comes first. So Rankin Wilborn, in his book, Union with Christ, and I, it's a great book. Everyone should read it. Rankin Wilborn wrote this. There is nothing more liberating or life-giving than knowing that God has pronounced you innocent, legally innocent, now that you are united to Jesus Christ. This is a once-for-all, an irrevocable announcement. It is, a real and it is as real and eternal as the word of God itself. See, friends, that there's this declaration over you. That declaration over you is the foundation of acceptance and favor in our lives. It's so strong that we can live in holiness and in the freedom of the Spirit. And it's by faith that we have this. And this taps into the second implication of the gospel, and it's repentance. Repentance is this act of turning away from sin and to God. So if sin, in other words, is running from God, repentance is actually running to God. If sin is hiding, and trying, hiding from God and trying to get control of our lives, repentance is coming to God vulnerably 
and surrendering and giving him the control of our lives. So Martin Luther, in 1517, took the 95 theses and nailed them to a church door in his town of Wittenberg. And the first theses said this, that when our Lord said, repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be repentance. See, friends, repentance is actually the whole of the Christian life. There's this turning from sin and turning to God. This transformation, that's a transformation. This transformation, this newness, is a, this difference that is the new, is the Christian life. It takes place only when we find ourselves bowing down to the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we need to continually own, confess, and repent of our sins. And the truth is, many times we're blind to our own sins. And so we need to pray God's word into our hearts. We need to remind ourselves of the gospel. And so we can start with this in Psalm 139, where it goes like this. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Think about that prayer for a moment. That examination, that request goes deep. And there's a confidence in that prayer where we say to the Lord, examine my heart because the truth is our, we will, our sins will be exposed. And that is actually something we do not have to be afraid of because our sin, God knows our sin. God loves us despite our sin. And God rescued us because we are sinners. That is an amazing truth. And so when God actually reveals our sinfulness to us, that is a gift. That is a kindness. Think about Romans 2. That God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. His love, his grace, his mercy, his faithfulness, everything that God, everything who God is, everything that God does is meant to draw us closer to him and turn us to him. So let's think about this and end on this. Let's return back to Mickey Mouse. The wonderful news of the gospel is that we don't actually have to put on our best self. We do not have to put on our best self. Because our best self never measured up in the first place. We do not have to pretend. We do not have to perform. We do not have to hide. Because we have life with God because of Jesus Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. So that is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. The life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. Friends, enjoy this. This is the gospel, that everything that is true about Jesus Christ is true about you by faith. Enjoy that, delight in that, and rest in that. Because that is the gospel. That is the good news. It's the best news. Let's pray.